My name is Sarah Patton, and I wrote a novel about the French resistance called The Measure of Gold, and it's a book that opens as Penelope, my resistance heroine, has just received an urgent letter from her childhood friend calling her to Paris just after the German invasion. Espionage and alchemy. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. Joining us is Sarah Patton, who earned a B.A. in English and wrote poetry at Cornell University and an advanced degree in creative writing at Dartmouth, where her thesis was a collection of short stories. She spent 15 years as an English teacher, creative writing instructor, and school administrator. A native of Chattanooga, Tennessee, Patton lives in Asheville, North Carolina, with her husband and three children. She's author of the historical novel The Measure of Gold, set in World War II in Europe, which deals with primarily female spies. Where did the inspiration for The Measure of Gold come from? That's a great question. First, before I begin, I'd like to say thank you, Bob, so much for having me on your program. I suppose the seed for The Measure of Gold started for me about 10 years ago when I was writing and researching another book that was set in World War II but in America. And during that time, I stumbled on a biography that was called The Wolves at the Door about Virginia Hall, who was an American resistance fighter in France during World War II. Uh, I think more recently, a book called A Woman of No Importance has been released, which highlights her amazing accomplishments by Sonia Purnell. But the book I read was The Wolves at the Door. And when I read that book, she referenced all these other women in her network that she had worked with. And Mm -hmm. that book ultimately led me to many other books and stories about women from within France and Europe, but also from other countries who had come to France to help fight the Germans. And because they were women, there was no formal point of entry for them into the war. So the stories were really compelling and really unexpected. For example, with Hall, Virginia Hall, I kept wondering how a woman from a privileged family in Maryland and a wooden leg (laughs) ended up being one of the most effective spies in the war. Mm -hmm. And all the stories were similar to that about these women, and they were incredibly brilliant and brave and filled with love and betrayal and revenge and all the kinds of plot twists that lend themselves to a compelling plot in a novel. But honestly, I think what kept me reading all these stories was how unexpected and heroic these women were. One by one, as they entered into France and met various spy agents. They were told quite explicitly how they would likely not live more than six months, how if they, when they were caught, not if, they would be horribly tortured before they were killed, and how they were ultimately would never be known or acknowledged for the work they did. And I think that the sort of raw heroism of what I saw in that drew me to the story as a writer. So I actually set aside my other manuscript for a while to write my own female spy story called The Measure of Gold. Now, the woman that you mentioned, I'd not uh, heard of her. Virginia Hall was her name? She's from Maryland? Yeah, she's from Maryland. A a book came out recently by Sonia Purnell about her that highlighted, I was actually really excited to see it come out because it highlighted her amazing story. She was one of the most uh, renowned spies of the war, the Butcher of, of Lyon, Barbara Kloss, actually sought her, hunted her for two to three years of the war. 
and they called her the limping lady. They only they didn't know who she was, but they knew she had a limp. She actually had a a wooden leg that was like almost ten pounds in weight, and because um, she'd had a hunting accident when she was much younger, um, and they knew that about her. And so, um, anyway, Sonia Purnell wrote this beautiful book about her um, that highlighted some of her um, story, mm-hmm. which was I think important because she was she actually has a um, part of the Pentagon, there's a um, training camp that they named after her, um, and she en- ended up joining the CIA after the the war because she was so renowned and effective at, at her work. Really? So she did survive the war? She did. She married a French man and then moved back to America after the war and barely spoke about what she did. Um, and people referenced her in her stories who talked about her in the CIA, which was, you know, at that time... A, a boys club you know i think a lot of people from elite colleges worked there and it was sort of like a gentleman's club so it was pretty unusual that she was hired by them and actually had been turned down by them a, no, a number of times had to really forge her reputation um mm. in world war Two. and i think she was a little bit of an oddity i think people she was super enthusiastic and a little bit quiet um and uh and people didn't really know what to make of her and really never talked about what she did. I don't think people really knew why she was there or what she brought to the table as much as they probably should have. But ultimately, her story, um, I think when she died even, her obituary was just a little paragraph in her local paper. And then um, much later, her story emerged, and there's a portrait of her in the CIA, and then they've now named um, one of their training camps after her, and, and she's getting more acknowledgement for her sort of unexpected bravery. There was no reason that a woman from America should have ended up in Europe and risking her life the way she did. Um, she could have easily, she was from a privileged family, just come back to America and lived a very comfortable life and, and watched it from the sidelines, but she didn't. And that was really interesting to me. And there were a lot of women like that um, because there was, like I said, no formal entry into the war. There were a lot of women who, who just risked it all because they saw it as this um, moral imperative. And um, and that's, for me, such a compelling type of heroism to just go for it because it's the right thing to do. Let me ask you, and again, I apologize in a sense we're not talking about your book, but about the sources of your book. First off, is Virginia Hall a, a prototype for your a protagonist, Penelope? You know, it was it was a number of years I just sort of I didn't at the beginning when I started reading these stories I didn't realize that I was going to set aside my other book it was sort of something that it became a little bit of a hobby I just found it super inspiring and um and so yeah I think she it's not Virginia Hall she's very different than Penelope Penelope's a blend of of some of my favorite parts of the various women that I encountered in my research and and my own twist as well um I wanted to you know, having grown up in the South and, you know, I, having taken, taught writing, you know, you always tell, write what you know. You know, of course, I do not, I did not live during the World War II. I did not grow up in France. So I wanted right. my character to be based in a place of deep knowing for me. And so I made her from Tennessee. And it wasn't, you know, when I first circulated the manuscript, a lot of agents said, oh, this isn't realistic. A girl from Tennessee would never do this. And that's actually not true. A lot of the people who were the most heroic were people who came from other countries, New Zealand, and there was a woman from Egypt. There were several Americans who were incredibly influential, and it was always this just random series of events, some coincidences and some 
just raw curiosity and bravery that led them to that moment. Um, and I wanted to represent that aspect of it um, because I found it, it pretty compelling. Is Does the real Virginia Hall make an appearance in your novel, Measure of Gold? She does not. Um, she was more, worked more out of, she was based out of Lyon, and I wanted my novel to be set in Paris because one of the things that I find most interesting about France and World War II is Paris in particular's relationship with the war because it was such, it went just in a day from being such a vibrant and creative city. It was really the center of the world in a lot of ways because of really since I think the World's Fair, you know, that highlighted, Mm -hmm. they built the Eiffel Tower and everybody came to think of Paris as this exotic place of creativity and culture and you had all these expats living there, and everybody was just sort of drawn there and had their eye there. And then it was such a rapid transformation from the moment the Germans invaded France. You know, six weeks later, without a bullet fired, the city was under German control, and Hitler was, I think, as surprised as anyone to be driving around with his new conquest, which was, in particular, I I liked the juxtaposition of Paris as, this sort of hyper-free and cultured and exotic city in contrast with the strict Nazi bigotry and lack of acceptance of things that were different. And um, to have that happen so quickly, you know, you look at pictures of even the German soldiers as they enter Paris, and they, they're like partly tourists. I, I don't know if you've ever seen right. the pictures. They just are looking around in awe at the city they've always had this sort of infatuation with, and at the same time sort of surprised that no bullet was fired and they're just walking in and so forth. So I wanted it to be based in Paris, and most of her work was done outside of Paris. And Mm -hmm. so she does not make an appearance. And let me ask you about another one of the uh, female uh, spies in in France who was from another country, and that was the African-American entertainer Josephine Baker, who was born in St. Louis, right? But she ended up living in France, renouncing her American citizenship and becoming a French citizen. Yeah, and I think I drew more from her ty- her story than I did Virginia Hall's because my Penelope is, is a performer like Josephine Baker ultimately becomes one. She doesn't intend to, but it in- ends up happening for her. Um, yeah, I think Josephine Baker is sort of the perfect example of just such a dynamic and unexpected life. Um, she, yeah, was raised in, in St. Louis and then had this horrific childhood experience where she was, her family was driven out of their neighborhood by an angry racist white mob and they burned down, I think, 6,000 or 7,000 homes and they were driven out of the city in, in fear. I mean, there's pictures of it and, the, you know, the families are just unbelievably terrified. They think they're going to be killed. And she was traumatized by that um, and ended up sort of following the trail, like many artists um, who are more avant-garde, to Paris. Um, she was drawn in by the sense of freedom and acceptance, even as an African-American woman. And, um, and she ended up building a life there, married a Jewish man, and was uh, performing. She was sort of the, the hot ticket item of the, of the time of the jazz age right before the war. And... Um, and then when the war broke out, she had such a strong, I think, moral compass from that experience early in her life of injustice that she 
without question, became um, a, started working with the resistance. Of course, it was a terribly racist time, and of course, the Nazis were the most penultimate racist <laughs> of all. And she, because of she was such an exotic performer, they had this sort of infatuation with her and ignored her. And so she ended up doing a lot of work um, for the for the resistance and conveying a lot of. She had, she was free to travel, so she was able to transport documents to England and uh, would hide them in her music notes and and put them in in her uh, undergarments and so forth. Um, eventually, they caught on to her. Um, they sort of became more aware of the power and influence of women. The Nazis did, and you know, there's this incredible story. It was such a different time. You know, now we're so monitored by our various devices, but it was a more innocent technological time. It was more re- mm-hmm. relationship-based, and so there's this story of when she, you know, that they come to arrest her at her house, and she basically charmed them out of it and, and then left and fled to America for a while. But, yeah, she was a very powerful and brave woman, and then she, when she came back to America, she didn't stop there. She did all this... Um, work in the civil rights movement as well. So she lived a very compelling life. I love her story. Now, when you're Penelope, well, you started, uh, well, let me ask you the premise of the, of your novel or kind of the cast of characters and what's going on. Penelope is from America. She's a Southern white woman, I presume, who's from Tennessee. That's correct. And you're from Tennessee. I am. (laughs) I grew up in Tennessee. So is there some connection there? You know, I just felt like I wanted to write what I knew, and I felt like, she, to be authentic, I felt like she needed to come from the, the place, the part of America I understood best, and so I wanted her, and I liked the idea of her coming from, you know, there was some, there were several women who came from, like, rural farms in Iowa, and there was a farm farmer from um, New Zealand, even, who ended up making her way, and so I wanted that sort of random mixture of of fate and and moral imperative and luck, or luck, good luck or bad luck, depending on how you see it, um, that it made these women end up there. And so I just wanted to start from what I knew because I was traveling into a, a less known arena and I had to do a lot of research to try to understand sort of the skin and the place mm-hmm. in which she lived once she left Tennessee. I'm curious if you, uh, in your research, came across this. Now, I'm from upstate New York. Uh, the community of Amsterdam, New York, is where I was born. The richest family in Amsterdam was the Sanfords. And one of the Sanford women, Gertrude Sanford Legendre, uh, is reputed to have been a spy in uh, World War II. She ended up living in, in South Carolina in the big former plantation. Have you ever heard of her? Or is that? Uh, I haven't. I, you know, I think, um, but that I would believe it. You know, a lot of women, a lot of, one of the things that was sort of interesting was, uh, it's not true of my character, but there were a lot of women from affluent families across the world who went and, and contributed. I don't know if it's because they studied abroad and they spoke French or in, in possibly multiple languages, but they, you know, took that opportunity and the money to get into Europe and, and, and take that trip in spite of the fact that they were likely to die, it gave them an, a tactical advantage to be American. You know, until America entered the war, it was it was easier for them to travel around. That was part of what Josephine Baker was able to do as a performer, is she could travel throughout Europe without, um, you know, drawing too much attention. And I think 
particularly as women, as Americans, they were incredibly effective spies in, in, for um, England. England figured that out. Initially, it was similar to the CIA. You know, Churchill created this organization called the SOE, um, and he, it was, you know, the idea was it was going to be this covert operation that was going to, he would like to say, it was going to set Europe ablaze and sort of create trouble from the inside out because he knew better than anyone. Um, he had identified Hitler before anybody was really willing to talk about it. He had identified when he first came in into, into power in, um, in England and was discounted many times before he actually was the man of the moment right before the war. But he knew what Hitler was capable of, and no one would really listen to him. Listen to him. And so he knew better than anyone that they were staging a war on England from France and that France was particularly pivotal to England, that he needed to make as much trouble for the Germans as possible. And so they soon figured out in the SOE that they, you know, every time they dropped a stranger who was a man into France, he was incredibly noticeable because a lot of the men had actually been killed in World War One, and France was very much reeling from that. And then men were just being carted out of France into Germany for to work in the factories and so forth. And so, you know, it was much, much of France was women and the elderly and children at that time. And, and so it was much easier for them to drop a woman who would be pretty inconspicuous into, into France and Europe in general, but particularly France. And um, they learned to recruit them, and they learned how effective they were at building trust and relationships and creating these really elaborate networks that it took the Germans, I think, several years to really catch on. Because they were incredibly sexist, the culture at that time, the Nazis, and they were, um, they just didn't think women were capable of such things. And so they were able to, for many years, maneuver um, mm. in, in, in relative freedom. So being an American from upstate New York would not surprise me. I think there were so many women who participated. You know, 15 to 20 percent of the um, French resistance was women. But at the end of the day, when um, Charles de Gaulle took office, he, he honored you know, over 1,000 people, but only six of the, of the people who were honored for their work were women. Uh. But we know that 15, 15 to 20 percent were actually women. And so there are a lot of sort of silent participators, and to the one, all of them just sort of quietly came back to their lives and, um, mm. and barely talked about it, and, uh, and I, I think expected nothing out of the work they did. They just did it because they felt like there was this really evil thing happening and that they, they had to risk their lives, and many of them lost their lives to do something about it. Sarah Patton is with us. She's author of the historical novel, The Measure of Gold, set in World War II in Europe. I haven't asked you yet about what I thought might have been a dominating uh, feature of our conversation. We have about uh, 10 minutes left. Um, and that is the subject of alchemy, uh, turning base metals into gold and, and more. I mean, what is alchemy and how does it figure in your uh, novel? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. It's it's sort of a, a unusual aspect, and it brings sort of this supernatural aspect into the book that I think is makes it a pretty unique story. Um, you know, for me, I'm a huge reader and um, and and love to read biographies and so forth. And so, coincidentally, at the same time this was happening, I was reading a biography of Isaac Newton. And one of the things that came I came across in my research was that as much as this was 
incredibly bloody war and a tactical war and very sort of relationship, person-to-person war. It was also a war of science. And ultimately, the, the imagination aspect of science that I think is represented in alchemy and in certainly in Isaac Newton's work was was what, in the end, silenced the war and, and that sort of leap of, of imagination that Einstein and Newton were able to make where they really thought deeply outside the box of, of the parameters of science um, was a really interesting theme to me. And as I sort of leaned into that with and, and what was happening in Paris, and I, I wanted the symbol of Notre Dame, which is the cover of my book, to be a, a primary symbol in the book, in part because it was also a visual symbol for a lot of the air raids and such that happened. You know, they would always orient themselves uh, from Notre Dame. They, that was just this fixed, they would follow the Seine until they got to Notre mm-hmm. Dame, and then they would know they were in the center of Paris. But that led me into this unusual character that was actually a, a true historical uh, well, I don't know if he existed or not, but he was—he—he—he he, he wrote either someone wrote it in his pretend name, or he actually wrote books. This character called Fulcanelli, and it's this weird puzzle piece that fit in really well to the manuscript. And I—and I went with it, and I think it's one of the more sort of poetic parts of the book. Um, and and the fundamental theme behind that is the idea that you know, in alchemy, you add an, a volatile element to purify to create the higher principle of gold. Gold was always the goal. And I think that the war really forged for a lot of people, forged them into gold, essentially, that they were confronted with these impossible choices, and they learned a lot about who they really were from the inside out. And so that's, in many ways, the theme of alchemy and the sort of ways I play with reality. I think that was true for certain people, Newton himself, including the character of Fulcanelli and his contemporaries, but um, it, it allowed me to sort of navigate that, that question of, like, what, what, who are you inside, on the inside and what happens when you, you mm-hmm. add these unexpected elements. It was sort of an emotional component of the book. The world isn't sure there was really was a Fulcanelli, this famous alchemist, but you made him a character in your book, right? I did, yeah. It, he's a really unusual... I really stumbled into him. I started studying about Gothic architecture... Um, because you know, there, Newton was very big believer that the secrets of the of the universe were written by the ancients into the architecture of Gothic churches, and he was almost like paranoidly obsessed with that, and wrote all this encoded language. I mean, to the extent of like, I think a million words or more. It was like a the War and Peace equivalent. He wrote encoded language about alchemy. He was really more interested in that, um, and so I stumbled into this character of Falconelli through that study because he had written a book called The Mysteries of the Cathedral. And it was all about the, the, the mysteries that were written into the architecture of Notre Dame. And then I was like, who is Falconelli? What an unusual name. And I started researching him, and um, I think certain communities know a lot about him. But uh, he was this mysterious figure who is supposed in, in certain alchemy circles felt was thought to have invented or created the philosopher's stone and, and has, has immortal life so he's still somewhere around us um, but and more likely he was a, a person that was created by you know mentorship was a really big aspect of alchemy and he was created by 
an alchemist who wanted to get a higher profile. And so he actually wrote the books. His name was Cassoulet, and he he wrote the books and then put them in Fulcanelli's name and pretended that Fulcanelli was his mentor and uh, and gained status and recognition by associating with him. But there are people who really believe Fulcanelli existed, and I gave him, and that he might have even been part of French royalty. There's a lot of theories. No one really knows, but um, mm. it, he was sort of an interesting and mysterious character. And so I, I liked his name, and I liked everything about him, and so I put him right at the center of the novel. Now, back to your protagonist, Penelope, which in world literature, Penelope was the name for um, Odysseus's wife, who was left behind while Odysseus went off to fight the Trojan War in Homer's Odyssey. But you make Penelope the the hero, if you will. Yeah, that was that was in, intentional. I wanted to, you know, that the she was sitting behind weaving and unweaving, but I wanted uh, my Penelope to have a story. Um, you know, Penelope in the Odyssey has somewhat of a story, but not as compelling a story as I think she deserves. And I wanted my Penelope to be in the mix of things and, and maneuvering and, you know, maybe from the outside looking in, she's just, you know, metaphorically weaving and unweaving. Um, but, but really she's doing some pivotal types of work that ultimately end up influencing the outcome of the war and in a really effective way. And, uh, and, and so I wanted, yeah, to tell a different story of, of, a, of a Penelope than the one of the wife-in-waiting in the Odyssey. It is the first of a trilogy, correct? No, it's actually going to stand alone. Um, it, it doesn't, there's no more coming out after it. This is her story. I'm sure that people will want, I leave it in such a place that I think people might want more. Um, but I think that similar to Virginia Hall, she comes back to America and her life continues. Her espionage work takes place in a brothel. Is that true? Yes, that is true. She, one of the things that I came across in my research, there was never any specific story, but I, I believed in my heart that it had to be true, that some of the best information was being offered in those moments of intimacy and inside the brothel when people sort of disarm and, and take off their weapons and, and become some form of, of human beings again. And I, I believe that there was incredible communication that happened. And there was one reference in, um, in one of the books about Virginia Hall about how she would talk to some of the uh, prostitutes in the brothel and they, that they had good information. But I thought, well, they, what, what a missed opportunity if they did not. Uh, I never could find an example of it. But if, if Churchill never um, in, embedded a woman inside of one of the brothels in Paris where all the action was happening and all these really important conversations were happening and people were surely sharing some of the biggest types of um, information about military tactics and who was going to war, what had just happened and what was about to happen and, you know, where the soldiers were headed and so forth, because ultimately that was the most effective information. You know, the, you hear a lot about the sabotage and the things that were exploded and so forth and the types of the ways in which, you know, women in particular would, you know, the, air, the airplanes would be shot down and then British and Allied soldiers would be scurried across the Pyrenees, and all that was very exciting and, and, and wonderful. I mean, I think 8,000 or 9,000 soldiers were saved in that. But I really think, and there were several stories of intelligence that had been acquired by either interpreters or, you know, through types of things that might have happened at, at the brothel that would have that made, you know, radical difference. There was one story of a woman who 
with an interpreter who ended up giving, she was sort of played dumb and, and flirty and ended up getting information about these long-range missiles that were being developed, and it was sent to Winston Churchill's desk. And I think people believe that ultimately the bombing mm-hmm. of the Baltic island where that was being developed delayed some a, a new assault that would have happened that potentially could have delayed D-Day. Sarah Patton is author of the historical novel The Measure of Gold, set in World War II in Europe. It's published by Ashland Press. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.